Bet365 sponsors our podcast and features over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you'll ever need to bet on sport. It's the League Cup final this weekend as Man City take on Aston Villa at Wembley. Will City win the trophy for a third year in a row or can Grealish inspire Villa to a famous upset? With Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to build your own personalised bet. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Crank up the music, charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. The word pundit originates from the mid-17th century, from the Sanskrit pandita. It means learned man, a Hindu scholar of philosophy and religion, typically also a practicing priest, an intellectual, and a footballer from the mid-1990s who knows that this game is going to come down to who wants it more. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Today's episode is all about punditry and commentary, so I feel morally, legally obliged to introduce my guests as two men who know a thing or two about what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, first of all, Charlie Eccleshare is back again. You're like, you are part of the furniture now. Are you a stalwart? Rapidly becoming one, yeah. it appears, yeah. St- still in the kind of guest sphere, but yeah it's, yeah, it's becoming quite regular. If you think this is going to become the Eccleshare and Hurry show, then you're sadly mistaken. I have been lobbying. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you're on the, three the, times, you the, own the podcast. Yeah, the top. Well, it's like, do you get to keep the trophy? Like, I get to keep the mic <laughs> keep at the, the end the of this one. No, you can't. Um, we also have the Athletics Managing Editor of Audio. This is a bit like... In my head, this is a bit like when Abramovich comes down to the Chelsea dressing room or when a headmaster comes into a school lesson. It's David Walker. Hello. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. You were just in the office. It was you my, were just it was around. My, it was my decision. <laughs> yeah. So it's fine. <laughs> you are, yeah, you are becoming a bit too involved in the kind of day-to-day <laughs> things. Hands on. Um, we start, as we always do, with things we noticed about football this week. Um I feel like we have to talk about Manchester City players' dress sense. I feel like this was imposed upon them by the looks of it. But they flew to Madrid for their Champions League game, dressed all in denim. It's a shocker, isn't it? It is. And I uh, say to a man wearing yeah, Dave, denim. You're halfway I say, there. Well, I mean, I am wearing double denim today. And, Me too. And, but that's fine. I think as long as the, the tones are different, top and bottom have to be different. Even if they're both blue, one light, one dark. Yeah. Whereas with Man City's was both head to toe, the exact same denim the whole way through yeah. with awful like clunky black shoes as well. But it, it's, it's part of like City's sort of official leisure wear brand, isn't yeah. it, I think? Right. They've done it before, I think. I, I think it's just the least cool footballers have ever looked. Do you think footballers have an ongoing problem with denim, Charlie? Uh, denim, probably, and I think clothes in general. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. There was a good uh, article in Vice, I think it was last year, about um, footballers and their relationship with clothes, and 
think it was broadly saying that when you have that much money, um, unless you really know what you're doing, it's it's quite hard not to look quite garish in the sort of stuff you're wearing. And there's that really good uh, account in there for the footballers dressed badly Twitter account, which mm. I recommend following. Okay, the, the um, famous shot lo- is the the Ma- is it Manchester United mid noughties early noughties oh, Rooney, yeah, Hitch, exactly, Rio yeah. Ferdinand, off to the they're, races or something. I think yeah, they're all out on a Christmas do or something <laughs> so in baggy. Manchester. Boot cut jeans everywhere you look, like weird jumpers that are like old man jumpers, yeah, yeah. but it, it's awful. It's, it's it's you can't account for the discrepancy between having loads of money and then being able to dress well. It's there at some point it just flips and then there there is no taste. Of course, there's a lot of those like diamond print stuff as well, yeah. which I guess because it's so pricey, it's like well may as well. But then Dominic Calvert Lewin, of course. Uh, spotted recently in the New York looking great show. yeah like yeah and Davies as well yeah I think maybe they should do a thing like you know when instead of like initiations when you have to the new player has to sing a song <laughs> the new player has to choose the dress right f- the dress wear for the next away trip <laughs> can you imagine I'm trying to th- sort of picture sort of Sean Dyche kind of introducing that to his Burnley squad I can't see <laughs> a Burnley anyway this isn't Vogue this is football cliches um, uh, a man called Ollie HFR tweeted um, at the weekend tell you what you don't see anymore players running out the tunnel before kickoff doing a jump an imaginary header he's bloody right you don't see that anymore I feel like he's been replaced by that really earnest sprint onto the pitch by a substitute and that constitutes getting up to speed uh, anything else you don't see I, in football well, anymore I think I've got a theory as to why I think that is okay because I've noticed this as well and ev- every time I've had the good fortune to play at a professional ground in like a media end of season friendly thing I've always done that run out the tunnel and a, a chain a couple of like quick changes of directions mm. and then a header and then an imaginary imaginary clap to the imaginary fans <laughs> in, the, in the stand but in in real football I think there's too there's too many bits of pre-match Premier League ceremony and yeah. Champions League ceremony now. Mm. The referee has to walk out slowly and time his walk for the cameras, pick mm. up the ball from the plinth. The plinth. And the players then... So the opportunity to run from the tun- from darkness into light, which gives you that boost of adrenaline, isn't really there anymore. Yeah. And also you've got... You're probably holding the hand of a six-year-old boy or girl as well yeah. at the also, same time. London Stadium, like you have to, you'd have to time your header quite uh, what late. You have to make a sort of late run into the. <laughs> yeah. It's it's difficult. Yeah, until stadiums become sort of equally sized, I guess the the run and jump really is set for extinction. Interesting one. Um, but we're here to talk about commentary and punditry, and I, this is a subject that really angers people, really angers TV viewers, and, it, and, it, and I, I find it really strange that people get so upset about commentators, and then when you boil it down to its necessary parts, all it really is is that they've got angry at the commentators saying something bad about their team, That really, it, that's all that flicks a football fan switch, but this is what we're here to talk about, but Charlie, what do we really get out of commentary? What, as a TV viewer, what are you hoping to get? What is the value that they're providing? I think in an ideal world, they'll tell you something that you... I mean, I think where they could be really good and where sometimes they're not is where they talk about things that you could only really know as a professional footballer. So they'll give you those insights and you're like, right, yeah, there's no way I could ever have known that. Mm. I think fans sometimes get frustrating when they're just sort of telling you what's happening on screen. Yeah. You know, and it's like, he loves to tackle. It's like, he, he this manager's built a team in his image. He loved to tackle. Here are some players tackling. <laughs> and it's kind of like, I can see that they're tackling. 
But Dave, I, I wonder, do we really care about insight? Insight seems to be this real kind of standard that we have to have in our commentary and punditry. You've watched enough football in your life. If you're sat down and watching, say, Watford on the telly, do you really need someone talking you through it? Or is it just verbal wallpaper? I think I think there's a distinction between watching your own team and, and yeah. watching a game as a neutral. If you're watching a game as a neutral, then maybe you do want, you look out for what the commentator or the co-commentator is saying. The co-commentator is obviously there to bring the insight and the analysis. And the, yeah. the best ones, I think we've seen in the last, well, 10 years now, really, you know, Gary Neville and the like of him have really put that effort into telling us things we we don't know about football, explaining the game in a way that only a player of that calibre really can. Mm. But the, the commentator is there. You know, we, not, we don't want necessarily want insight and analysis from them, but they are there. You think of any great moment that you've watched on TV in your lifetime. Yeah. You remember the commentary more than the, the, the goal. I almost. think you might be right. Yeah. I think you might be right. And, and, and you know, we, we can focus a lot on the words and the phrases they might use, but sometimes good goals just come down to just vowel sounds. So it really, it doesn't really matter. You, you, as long as they exclaim it enough, we're going to remember that commentary as, as good. Right. Yeah, I, I do think though it is interesting with like the Neville uh, Carragher because that has raised the bar I mm. think a little bit, and so that's why it can sometimes feel a bit strange that then you go you get used to that over the course of Premier League season, and then you go to a World Cup or a major tournament, and obviously it's appealing to a very different audience. And I think for those people who are engaged and they do like that the kind of Nevilleification of um, football <laughs> punditry, <worse. laughs> yeah, uh, that can suddenly seem a bit underwhelming mm. and like is this really all we're gonna get i think having having already prefaced this episode by saying i don't think we should produce value judgments on commentators i feel obliged to also ask who's your favorite commentator um my favorite commentator is jonathan pierce ah. but the a particular version of Jonathan Pierce, and maybe we'll get onto this maybe a bit later, but or maybe we could dive in straight away. Jonathan Pierce version one point zero. Jonathan Pierce Let's have in it. the nineteen nineties on Capital Gold is my favourite commentator of mm. all time, and I think this would probably be true of a lot of people. One of the reasons is that because that was really my first proper memory of engaging with football yeah. and listening to the commentary, and also is because at that time, like I'm sure many people in the sort of infancy of Sky. We didn't have Sky. Yeah. So the only way I got football was listening to the radio. He was on Capital Gold, which my mum used to listen to during the day. So he's on in the evening. 15.48 a.m. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, I mean, he was just absolutely absurd. He was so, you know, extreme and so partisan, especially for the England matches. And I don't know if you've heard his commentary of England against Holland in Euro 96 is... Mm. I've never heard this. I've never heard it. I'm going to play you some now because I there was so looking forward to this. There was <laughs> there was there was always a line that stuck in my mind, and it was played over uh, a version of Euro of um, Three Lions, right? Bedell and Skinner. Mm. And I in my mind I thought, did they put that on Three Lions '98? Where did I hear that? Right. Yeah. But it turns out it was just like a Capital Gold sort of remix that they did. They took Pierce's commentary and thought, well, we'll just bang it over the top of the yeah. song. And there was a line. Where he goes, A L Super Al Super Alan Shearer, <laughs> and that is that line is stuck in my mind to this day, some thirty odd years later, or whatever yeah. it is. But so I I went to try and find it today on YouTube, and, yeah. and I found not only did I find that line, I also found just his commentary for the whole of that game is just on another level, and really does show just how conservative we are today. Shearer comes forward! It's A-L! Super 
that's just at one nil. <laughs> like I think sound advice to any commentator would be leave yourself somewhere to go. You know, yeah. if, if, if you, the first goal of the game, if it's an early goal or whatever, don't completely yeah. go balls to the wall and, you know, give yourself a bit of He's room He's got no go. respect for the commentators. So that's curse. one nil. So let's listen to where he eventually does get to. It's like a six-year-old's poem. Yeah. It's just like, what's it? the next word that I can write? But uh, I think it's an important point here is because if that if that happened today and it was a, like a Brazilian commentator or an Icelandic commentator, we'd be like, this guy is brilliant. Yeah. But it's just we feel like we hold our commentators to a completely set of different set of standards. Absolutely, I think so. And I, I mean, I think there was definitely that example in particular like I think he was given carte blanche by whoever was running Capital Radio yeah. in the 90s it's just it's it's an England home tournament mm. I mean the, and I don't mean this disparagingly in any way at all but that's basically like the audio version of the Sun's headlines it's mm. tabloid I was commentary say, it's very jingoistic isn't, isn't it, it? Yeah. Like, and yeah. it's fine the Dutch. pick that one out <laughs> but now we are you know I've noticed that and much more in the club sense it's, England is a bit different you can be a bit partisan I think as a mm. commentator because you know the nation's going to be watching you and they're with you. But any show of, like, the, the classic example is t- um, Tyler commentating on Anthony Martial's first goal for Manchester mm. United, and he just essentially goes, oh, yes! Yeah. And that just leads to a slew of conspiracy theories saying that he's a Manchester United fan. Would well, you remember they showed, yeah, because I think Pogba, he went crazy over something Pogba did. And then Hen- Jordan Henderson scored a real goal for, a really good goal for Liverpool against Chelsea. Mm. And he was very, like, uh, very sort of downbeat. So everyone went crazy about that. Yeah, this is an ongoing conspiracy theory about Tyler, is that he doesn't celebrate certain goals as much as he does for other clubs. And there are two things about here. One, if he does actually support one of those teams and not the other, so what? Who cares? It doesn't affect the game itself. Secondly, I think he'd be able to hide it a bit better than that if that genuinely was the case. I think he'd be professional enough. He's been commentating on football for about 480,000 years. I think he'd probably be able to hide it better than than that. So I don't really think he's biased. No. What did you guys think last year when there was the, uh, your little dancer, where Carragher was essentially just like a fan? I think so. Yeah, I, I thought it was okay. I did think if I'm watching that as a Spurs fan and you've just conceded, that might feel a little annoying. Like it's you haven't selected fans. Yeah, zone. do you know it, what I mean? It would like, turn the yes, okay, fair enough. I think it I, would turn the screw, but but I, you but it's Jamie yeah. Carragher. Yeah, so there is no point having any pretense that there's he's not, not. But he wasn't even you know, the second commentator. He was like you know when he does that kind of third man yeah. role. Mm. <laughs> in that, so you kind of forgotten he was there, and then you just yeah. on the earth at your little dance. I think I think the, the line. I don't mind it, but I think the line that gets crossed is when the broadcaster starts making it a thing and starts sort of really milking it and I think Sky are getting to that point because they did a montage the other night before the West Ham game Liverpool-West Ham and it included um, 
cutting back to the gantry with who that when they were filming the commentators and Carragher was sort of singing along to we're going to win the league mm. and it's like nah, a bit yeah. much when you, when they're starting to celebrate it I think that's when it starts to become yeah he also trying to he, own it. he reused the Mo Salah you you dancer line mm. in, in, in the most re, in the most recent game against United when he scored in the last oh, minute no. and you could tell you know it's just an in the moment thing but it, it just didn't it didn't work it didn't work in the same time I think I think if it's if it's authentically spontaneous yes. that's fine and I think people get I know I know loads of Spurs Arsenal fans whoever that would get really annoyed about that but you've got to just take a bit of a step back mm. and imagine you're Jamie Carragher in that moment you know you're going to be going mad I think in terms of spontaneous displays of um, verbalising football that some people might find distasteful, I think at this point we should talk about Peter Drury because <laughs> I, put, I put a tweet out before this, before this episode and said, what, what, what's your kind of favourite goals that have been commentated on from a, from a commentary perspective? So many replies replying with Drury's com- commentary for Manolas' goal against um, uh, Barcelona for Roma a couple of seasons ago. Oh, the Greek gods. Yeah, and yeah. It, and and it did, and it, and his kind of alliterative kind of speech monologue went on for ages, and he he insisted he didn't script it, and I believe him because how could yeah? I mean, you just yeah, he, he, you'd yeah. have to go through every player exactly and every scenario. <laughs> That's exactly what he said recently. He said if I'd scripted it, I would have literally had to write reams and reams. Yeah, and I, I don't have time to do that. So I believe that, and and as a social clip, I really enjoyed it, and. And I know it's not for everyone's taste and it's not for the purists, but it's quite good fun, isn't it? He just loves football. I thought that was amazing. What's wrong with that? But also, I remember at the time other um, commentators being like, this is just incredible commentary. Like, I really think it was. Mm. It did, it just like... I thought it captured it. But you know, someone I think about a lot with really great commentaries is Andy Gray. Yep. And I know Gray, you know, not to everyone's taste given everything that happened, but sure. as a commentator in that period, he was brilliant. Mm. I mean, he, he got such a good... Ba- and maybe by the end it was over the top and became a bit of a self-parody. But he was like, he was so enthusiastic. He loved like good attacking football. Yeah. And like, I think of him with a lot of like clips in my head. He also loved little made up conversations yes, between exactly, strikers and goalkeepers. Yeah. Um, and, and he said, he looks, he looks across and he says, I'm going to hit this. And he does. <laughs> and he hits it. I, I love the really specific <laughs> ones. So be like, and he just says to his mate, win us the Capital One Cup 2008. Or something like that. <laughs> there was a, back in the day when Facebook groups were a thing, there was a Facebook group set up purely for his imaginary conversations. And it was hard to tell which ones were the parodies and which ones are the real ones. My favourite ones were when he set up this kind of fictional battle of wits between a goalkeeper and a striker from the goalkeeper's perspective. And it was basically, goalkeeper stood up there and he says, go on, son, beat me. And he doesn't. <laughs> and, it, and it was just like, it, it was phrased as a question and then, and then the payoff. And uh, yeah, I kind of miss that. One of the it's a shame he, that he, you know, he did what he did. Well, he's still working. Yeah. <laughs> to, to all our listeners in the Middle East. Um, but one of the Does reasons- he do commentary though? I think he's no, more of a he's uh, very keys much, and he's, he's retired to the studio. Yeah, exactly. Days, yeah. Yeah, the comfortable surrounds of the studio. Mm. Um, but one of the reasons he's so good is because he's Scottish. Yeah, yeah. Scottish people are, have got excellent broadcast voices yeah, across yeah. the board Emphatic, in all mediums. kind of guttural, visceral. Yeah. It does help. I mean, I don't want to pigeonhole it. Co-commentators have this kind of luxury that they can fill the role of being the kind of the foil to the straight man that is the commentator. So, they, so you can have this regional accent. You can have this kind of wild, almost partisanship sometimes. Uh, I like. I, I do enjoy Glenn Hoddle. I th- again, he's not for everyone's taste, but it's just little idiosyncrasies. Like he'll say, "Oh, he's hit that lovely," and it, and it, that's how footballers talk. He's so got a picture. Yeah, you can see it. He's got a picture. 
he just he just talks in an, in an authentic footballery way, and I think I feel like you need that texture. I think for me, like enthusiasm is really important. The ones that I sort of find quite take some, the ones who sound like they're not really enjoying it, and it's like you've got such a great gig. Like, yeah, you, you know, you're watching football, talking about it. Like enthusiasm is so important. It is really important, and that you know that is the the classic critique of, of you know Mark Lawrenson, for example. Mm. Fine broadcaster though he was, I think we do forget a little bit like that he was really good and was on the BBC and an excellent defensive for coach for Newcastle. Yeah, <laughs> and a very no, a very nice man as well, I think. But he did have a habit of it. Just his his mannerism as a person was probably mm. more towards a, maybe a glass half empty sort of situation and. Yeah, that is important because you've got to remember that you, I heard Peter Drury talking about this recently. Mm. Like, you might not be enjoying it, enjoying it because you've the commentator, whoever it is, reporter, has seen hundreds of thousands of matches, and this might be a not a very good one. Yeah, but it always matters to someone, and they're yeah. not being paid to be there. You know, they're paying to watch or paying to be in the stadium. Yeah, I suppose it's a balancing act because you, you should be able to call a, a terrible game of football a terrible game of football, um, but you should at least be able to find some interest in it and why it's a rubbish game of football. The finest words in the English language are Ali McCoist, but first, John Champion. Um, <laughs> Another great Scott, of course. Yeah, but yeah, he's he's a different sub-genre of More Scottish jovial. co-commentators. Yeah. yeah, he's purely there for as a one-man band. It's, this isn't kind of... Yeah. I think in certain circumstances, you wouldn't want to meet Andy Gray in a Glasgow pub but you would always want to meet Ali McCoy mm. in a Glasgow. Pub. I think you he's have a top, different experience. He's top of the list of people I want to go for one single pint of beer with. <laughs> Ali McCoy. Co-commentators. There are there are some things that they are kind of legally mandated to do during their duties. First of all, is engage in this very specific banter with the commentator. These are the things that they are allowed to joke about between each other: their driving ability, or their car, like how rubbish their car is. Dress sense, dance moves. I've seen your dance moves. <laughs> um, just age, generally, like I things like oh, one. you probably remember the 1930 World Cup final. It, or something it, like. it would be, it would be. So the commentator would would, would reference, of course, Liverpool won this fixture famously in 1967, the last time these two teams met. You were there, weren't you, John? Exactly right. <laughs> Slade were top of the pops. But crucially, no one ever gets offended by this. This is all This is all very, very acceptable banter. Uh, and the last one is uh, golfing ability. Golf's golf really handicap. Yeah. yeah, I've seen you on the golf course. Yeah. You can't putt. With, with golf, actually, Keys and Grey, just going back, they on... Keeping up your 100% record yeah. of mentioning <laughs> Keys and Grey on your podcast. This would, be, this would be Premier League years like 94 and 95. <laughs> and Premier League and, years. Yeah. <laughs> but this is like the height of that sort of banter you're describing. Mm. And just get the, the right way around. I think Keys has a footage has footage of Grey playing cricket really badly. Yeah. So then the other responds with the other playing golf really badly. <laughs> and it's like becomes this whole big thing. And they're, they're obviously like absolutely loving it. Yeah. I th- so, th- they're, 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 the banter between them... Um, on, a, on a friendly basis is it's on another level it's almost subconscious like they cannot get out of that of that zone um, other things co-commentators are obliged to do is they are the they are the medical expert in the in the, in the gantry the commentator never will never offer an observation it's all down to the, the ex-player to do this and it boils down to two really important things is it an impact injury or is it a muscular injury? Because if it impacts, oh, you'll be able to run it off. If it's muscular, oh, his game's over. I mean, it's a bad one. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that, that is the extent. That's the medical qualifications you need to be a co-commentator. Um, crucial questions that co-commentators need to ask is, which manager will be the happier at half-time? The happier. It's such a weird way of phrasing it. Um, and then, uh, cliche quiz. 
Oh, shit. Once they've established who the happier manager is, what will he have asked for in the second half? More of the same. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so important that you get that right. They, they, they're, the never sure, they're never sure what's been said at half-time, <laughs> yeah. but whatever he said at half-time... <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he said in that... <laughs> whatever he said, it's had an instant effect, isn't it? I don't know what accent I'm going for there, but, it, but you, have, you just have to go for some sort of generic regional accent. Um, Dave... What are the lessons for any youngsters watching? During a game, some things will happen and their co-commenter will say, well, a lesson for any youngsters watching there. In terms of having looked, just looked at a play, looked at a replay, or whatever, that's a lesson for any youngsters yeah, watching. Yeah. Um, always make the keeper make a save. Yeah. Get it on target. <laughs> Tracking back. Feels like catchphrase now. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> you answer that in the exact style that someone used to answer it on catchphrase. Um, <laughs> Uh, the answer is downward headers. Like he's, he's, he's headed that downwards. That's everything they tell kids to do. Um, defenders staying on their feet as well. That uh, yeah, I remember that being a huge thing. Um, well, you need to brush up on your uh, on your co-commentator cliches. Obviously, um, these are the purest football cliches of all. Which is co-commentators either stating the obvious or repeating fallacies that have already been proven to be untrue, but they carry on <laughs> saying them anyway. Some examples. Uh, a player of his quality has got to be doing, doing better better from there. I mean, what does that mean? Just a player of his quality. It's, I, a, it's just meaningless words. I do find it out. was a game I was watching recently and the commentator standard was so high. I mean, like right. every chance, like you, you, you'd have it like edge of the box, sort of snapshot, but like he's got to be scoring there. It's like, Maybe I'm too generous, but that, that looks really, really hard to me. I also really enjoy it at free kick situations that it's the co-commentator's job, despite free kicks having been around for everybody's lifetimes. Um, he's got to get it up and down from there. It's a, perhaps a little bit too close. <laughs> yeah, to yeah, it's very, yeah, yeah. Favours the left footer. Reminding us that the ball has to get over the wall and into the goal. I think it's really crucial information. Thank you so much. Um I like things like it's going to take a moment of magic or a terrible mistake to, to decide this game as if they're the only two scenarios by which <laughs> yeah. a football game can be won. Um, I just uh, One that's also passed into kind of parody now is that in, when an away goal is scored in the Champions League and the co-commentator co- co- jumps in with this little bit of sort of wisdom, he says, well, in many ways, it hasn't really changed their tasks for tonight, has it? No, it hasn't. I mean, and then it really gets you thinking. It's ha- like, oh, maybe it hasn't. Have You, you obviously haven't listened to uh, the, this week's Zonal Marking podcast. No. I've started with, with listening Michael to it, yeah. Is it about away goals? It is about away goals and they, they do in in very serious ways compared <laughs> to what we're talking about debate that very issue <laughs> i mean but, the thing with that is when it's like it doesn't change things it's always annoying so i was like well it does because it means if they concede another one yeah then things are massively different whereas if they hadn't conceded that one they can almost afford yeah, you're, to you're misleading one. the country yeah and the way goes counting at times double. like this you don't want to be misleading the country we've done enough of that um Thing I very few things annoy me about commentary really, like to my core. But what does annoy me is what I can only describe as playful understatement. If Messi misses a chance, well, he's human after all, isn't he? Yeah. Um, the other Messi one that really gets me yeah. is it's not about Messi, but it's if if any Premier League player, sort of mid-ranking Premier League player, oh, yeah. scores an amazing goal. It's oh, if Messi had scored that, we'd be watching. <laughs> we'd be talking about it for years. Messi does score that goal, and we don't talk about it for years. He does it on a routinely on a I, weekly basis. I just, I don't and we understand, don't talk about it. I don't understand what any part of that means. I just, it doesn't make any sense because, as, as you quite rightly pointed out, if that thing happened that was true, it would happen. Yeah. Um, 
We should point out that we probably do all of these sort of irritating things ourselves. Yeah, that's the disclaimer for every episode. (laughs) Um, uh, This this gets my goat more than anything other. Head in my hands already. It's it's when they take a player who's very well known and then they they mention his name like this: a certain young man by the name of Cristiano Ronaldo. (laughs) Whatever happened to him? (laughs) Just stop doing that. Stop it. This is awful. It's like it's just like children's television. I don't like it. Certain is good, isn't it? Yeah, that's like a very specific. where yeah, describing someone a small matter of yeah, World yeah. Cup final. Yeah. Oh, I just don't. I, it just really irritates me, and that's one of the very few things that I can hand on heart say I can't stand about football commentary. Um, this is completely unconnected to the next section because I have we had a special guest this week, and I went to Wembley of all places, a small matter of Wembley Stadium, and talked to a certain Mr. Clive Tildesley. Well, takes a lot from wider society. It takes lots of phrases. We've been talking about this before. And it says it steals phrases from other eras and other walks of life. But it doesn't give much back, football. But one <laughs> phrase it does give back is, for me, Clive. <laughs> now, I think I feel like it's moved out of the realm of football now because it essentially, to me, for me, Clive basically means I have this opinion which I'm not entirely sure about, but I'd like to qualify that it is my opinion and then I'm putting it to you. That's essentially all those I three... I think it's not for me, Clive, isn't it? Is it more, more, not oh, more of a negative no, thing? Maybe, I th- maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I think it's a uh, not for me, Clive. Fancy a cup of tea, not for me, Clive. Not for me, Clive. How does that no. feel? How do you feel? You, you, you're essentially now well, immortalised. I, I suppose the origin of it is sitting next to somebody who's played the game that I would love to have been able to play, but couldn't. I mean, that's the role of the co-commentator. The, the co-commentator is to go down there, yeah. have a career and come back and tell the rest of us what it's like, how you miss an open goal, uh, how how you manage to execute a bicycle kick, to give us an overview. But they, only they can actually tell us, sitting next to somebody, it's probably Andy Townsend who said it mm-hmm. most often. Yeah. It's, it's as a result of me saying he really should have scored or whatever, and him saying, shut up, what do you know? <laughs> Not for me, Clive, is basically, what?! How many times have you played for England? I think that's essentially what "not for me" Clive is. You have a very distinctive voice. You, to me, you have you have a commentator's voice. Um, is, it, is this something you've cultivated? Do you think you'd still be speaking like this if you wouldn't, you've never worked in this job at all? Do you think you'd still be speaking like Clive Tildesley at the age of sixty-five if you hadn't been in the industry that you have? Well, I'm from Bury, so I should speak like Gary Neville, really. Well, this is the thing about your accent, because you're born in Lancashire, but to me it doesn't come across like that. It, it comes across to me like an approximation, as a, like, a, like a sort of happy medium for a broadcaster. A few, few beers, it will fall out. <laughs> I hope so. Um, um, what do you think? I wanted com- to be a commentator. I really, really wanted to be a commentator. Um, John Motson was the, was the person who... No, I'm going to rephrase that. And by the way, he's a really good friend. Is he the person I want to be? <laughs> Motti, are you really the person I want to be? <laughs> Nearly. Um, but no, he was the commentator I wanted to be. Yeah. I thought he was the first sort of journalistic commentator. I thought he was the first commentator who had contacts, who had a, a feel for the in, inside track of the game and, and brought that. He wasn't, I mean, listen, Brian Moore was my predecessor and Brian Moore's warmth, which is the greatest quality that any broadcaster can have, yeah. just was wonderful because he was a wonderful man, fascinating man. I, I'm The retail action is A, more acceptable, if not even more desirable today in, in modern broadcasting, yeah. which I think is fine, but... Um, I, I, 
I understand. I, listen, I, I work quite a lot alongside Glenn Hoddle. Um, and Glenn's grammar and his actual use of vocabulary, um, you know, them things. And it, I, But would you want to correct it? No. Would I want to correct it in a lead commentator? Yes, I think I would. I think I think in order to have a bit of credibility, and I don't think it's old-fashioned, but I think in order to carry that, what you're talking about, really, that a little bit of that authority and credibility mm. which goes, then I think that kind of neutral, strong voice is necessary. And then if you've got Jamie Carragher or Steve McManaman as a co-commentator, I, th- I think all the kind of idiosyncrasies of a Scouse accent and, and, and actually almost the mannerisms of, of the way that they communicate you can relate to A because they were great players in their day, but but you can't. That's sort of carried along as long as the lead commentator has got a, a fairly neutral broadcast voice. It does feel like there is a sort of different set of rules for a co-commentator because it, <laughs> I mean, Hoddle's a very good example because everybody knows what he's saying and what he's talking about, even if grammatically it's slightly imperfect. So we're we talking about kind of an authentic imperfection here because he's a footballer essentially and he's talking like we expect footballers to talk and how he talked to the England team when he was the manager how he talked to the Tottenham team yeah. when he was manager yeah. so that that kind of communication is is natural and and the content is more important um and content's hopefully really important in in the league commentators role too but I think the delivery and the choice of vocabulary we we, we in a good co- in a good commentator co commentator partnership, we should be the guy who sets the rhythm really, yep. uh, who tries not to make it a constant stream of consciousness, which I hate in mm. in television commentary. Who tries not to take it off on tangents which become distracting from what we're actually watching. So we've got to try to impose some discipline, and and I obviously have conversations with co-commentators, all the friendships have survived as a result of that, where I tried to give them some guidelines going into the commentary as to what I think our roles are. Um, Did David Pleat's good evening, everybody, fit into those guidelines? Never. Oh. I hated that. Really? I really did. Why? And I t- used to tell him, because I've already said good evening. But he's introducing himself. Well, he's, no, he's not. I thought, um, I've already introduced him. I'm stunned by this. I thought, <laughs> if we're talking about co-commentators, we have to talk about Townsend because I mean, he's a good friend of yours. You get along very oh, well. Oh, wonderful friend. And, and, you know, TV viewers are very pedantic about, about commentary for no reason because, you know, you, you deserve what you get, frankly. <laughs> and um, Townsend kind of split, split the room a little bit. But what I did like about Townsend, and he had his little mannerisms and his little phrases, but... Don't he, talk about these guys in the past tense. Stop doing that. No, no, sorry. I can only, I can only do this because I'm, I'm nostalgic by very nature. But, okay, I'll talk about it in the present tense. But he he was kind of a visceral co-commentator. When he spoke, he he was emphasising every aspect of football, the power, the pace, it seemed like, and even the passion or, or even the state of the game. That's handsome, though. Well, yeah. yes. I know what you're saying. I'll take you back to a very famous game that we did together, Champions League semi-final at Anfield. Chelsea fans know what's coming. <laughs> the ghost goal. Yeah. And um, our match director, the most important person at a, any television, uh, live television broadcast is is the, the man or woman who's calling the shots, who's, who's decided which camera you see. Um, and John Watts is one of the finest directors I've ever worked with and one of the nicest men I've ever met in television. John Watsy was right at the top of his profession and Watsy 
not only directed the game that night, but he was responsible for the camera positions and setting the stadium up. Yeah. We could not prove whether Luis Garcia's goal had crossed the line or not. That should really matter to all of us in television. Andy Townsend's just a former footballer who's come along for the ride and taken a buck to give us his views on yeah. the game. Andy cared so much that night that he was angry after the game. And all the way back, I went back in a taxi with him, back from Anfield, back to the hotel we're all staying in. And he just made a beeline for Watsi, say this wonderful man, and, and absolutely battered him, verbally battered him. For what? And the, because we didn't have a camera right, okay. that, that was on the goal line. I see. And there was, fortunately, Watsi had a really good reason for it that, I don't know whether there was a short period of time between ties at that time, quarterfinal, semifinal, but anyway, the seats had already, there were there were season ticket holder seats or something mm. that, that we could not physically position a camera it, it to, on the goal line at Anfield. So there was a good reason for it. But Andy Kett, Townsend cared about our output as much as he cared about his output when he was Aston Villa captain or Ireland captain. That really is all we ask of these guys when they come into our world. Come and enjoy it. You'll pick up a little bit of the team vibe you had in the dressing room, that thing that you miss. We, you know, we're all in this together. We all muck in together. No matter what our role in the production, we're all equal. We all play an equal part in it. And you'll be a part of that. And for that, it's great to have people like Wrighty and so on around us. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're, they are the life and soul of all of our party. And Andy, <laughs> Andy was one of that. But we want you to care. We want you to take as much pride in what we put out as you did when you were a player and when you were a manager. Football is a very unique set of words and phrases. It's Some of them are so strange and come from such strange places. I mean, for, let's take Corridor of Uncertainty, for example, which my cricket friends tell me is, you know, stolen from cricket. But, you know, in my experience, it's purely a football phrase. So it, football kind of steals phrases from here and there. But surely there are some that you kind of banned yourself from using. You, you just think, I, I just can't say that with a straight face. I think that a lot of football cliches are the very, very best way of communicating what it is yeah. that you're trying to say. I agree. I, I, and so, because that is the job, to communicate, in in Reggie's words, to be inclusive, to, to talk not to the England manager, but to my grandma, to talk to White Van Man, then I don't think we should ever be frightened of saying, this has been a game of two hearts. That's exactly what it's been. Yeah. It finished 2-2, two, 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 two. it started... Two nil at half time. It's been a game of two hearts. Now, if Private Eye or any other wonderful um, publication or somebody writing a pithy column uh, in the Athletic or the Guardian <laughs> or whatever happened to Charles Smith, uh, you know, wants to take that almost as a, a vicar might do, as the context of the entire sermon that he is now going to spend the next half hour setting asleep. If you really want to write a thousand words on the fact that Clive Tuzzi said last night, uh, then on you go. Game of two halves does what it says on the tin. So when you're describing a goal, what's, what, what's the aim? What are you trying to do? Um, on radio, you describe it. Yeah. Um, and so that's easy. I think radio commentary, a lot of it comes from the heart. Um, you, I, I like not only good use of words, I like tidy use of words, I like succinct use of words. So in many ways, I'm probably better suited to television commentary in so much that you don't actually have to say anything in television. 
Mm. Um, so anything you do say should add something. Now, if it's just adding a bit of a drama, if it's just, oh, hey, whoa, all those weird noises that we sort of orgasmic noises. But they're that, just as memorable, though. Well, things, they can they? be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, pick that out, you know, whatever. That As long as it's the right goal, yeah. you know, as long as it's <laughs> turned out to be deflected and or... Um, then I think that's almost sufficient. Any use of a classic adjective from magnificent to, you know, awesome or what, whatever was the most traditional to whatever is the most current, cool mm. or whatever, um, it's, it's got to fit. The, the, the viewer can see. Yeah. You can't kid the viewer. Um, so you and you you might get caught out from time to time. You might call, call a goal which you think was wonderful, but actually was a total fluke or came off the defender even better. You know, and you think, oh, fantastic finishing, what finishing? And then the thirty seconds like, well, actually, he didn't get to it. When you're watching a replay of a goal and it turns out that it sort of came off someone's shoulder rather than their head, does your heart sink? A absolutely, bit? Yeah. absolutely. All of all of your credibility built over 143 <laughs> years of broadcasting just slips somewhere down into your boxer shorts at that time uh, and you wish you'd kept your mouth shut for me mm-hmm. this is purely my input my opinion you said for me this is wonderful yeah yeah the comments i mean oh, for me Adam. uh the the goal flies in you give it the brilliant just brilliant mm. he never misses and then you've got a little bit of uh, sort of thinking time as he or she peels away. I I think then you're trying to find some consequence. Um, You know, 20 minutes ago, they need two more, whatever, something like that. They're trying to build the story. In comes your man with all of the analysis. And then I think the the proper underwrite facts come after that for me. Sure. If... If I hear a commentator say, oh, it's the first goal we scored since November the 9th, I, I think, no, no, that, that's later. That, mm-hmm. that comes later, mm-hmm. you know? And the dust has set. Yeah, you might say, if he hasn't scored for three months, he might say, oh, he really needed that, or, you know, nobody on the field wanted to score more, whatever, whatever, that's fine. But I think the nuts and bolts, the facts and figures, come somewhere a little bit later, after the co-commentator has reviewed it. That is my anatomy of the kind of perfect goal. Have you ever blamed a foreign TV director for an errant replay? Yes. Uh, more to protect the reputation of ITV mm. than protect the reputation of the now already shot to <laughs> in bits <laughs> reputation of Clive Tilsley. Um, <laughs> One of my little fascinations, ah. the commentator's curse. Ah. Have you ever been inflicted? Is it a thing? Does it exist? Do commentators talk about it? Do you, you know, when you're out on the road? I, Do you and John Champion talk about the commentator's <laughs> curse? John Champion and I talk about wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think we're always wary of going there. Mm. And, uh, and I mean, weirdly, um, if there is such a thing as the most famous line of my career, it's probably Anne Solskjaer's won it. Yeah. And there you are, I broke the cardinal rule of commentary that, uh, at that moment by calling the winner across the line before... That they'd got to the line and if Bayern had equalised and um, it had gone to extra time and they'd, of course, won the penalty shootout, uh, it, I'm, I'm not even sure I'd be doing this I now. I think they would have renamed it Tildesley's Law yeah, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So I think you try, you try to avoid the commentator's curse, but I think at that moment when you praise somebody for their passing and they make their first inaccurate pass for four years, you've got to laugh. Dave, you mentioned your favourite commentator is Jonathan Pierce. Charlie, do you have a favourite? 
main commentator. Yeah. Uh, Martin Tyler. Okay. I think he's... Um, Solid choice. Yeah, I've just... Uh, I think he... Um, he captures a moment really well. He he offers insight as well, like which is almost like an added extra. You don't have to do that as a main commentator. I think he was quite a good player. He was, yeah. Day. He what he I remember speaking to him and he said he play, he was a striker. Mm. And he played to a high level. Mm. So, um, but yeah, he was always like so for me the players that really uh, got me are strikers. Um, and yeah, I just think he he has a good enthusiasm and he has gravitas. The, longe- real- the longevity is, is amazing. It's amazing, yeah. He's still going, still delivering, uh, you know, at the top of his game. The amazing thing about the Aguero goal is, is not the Aguero. It's the 11 seconds of silence mm. that he mm. leaves mm. after the initial Aguero before he goes on to say, you won't see anything like this drink again, it drink in. it in, which in itself is an amazing line. But knowing, and that's the great, the great thing about all the great commentators mm. is they know when to be quiet and just let the noise of the crowd or whatever it is that's going on, just that's the story. What's funny as well with that, and I watched this recently, it made me think of this, that there are other commentaries, numerous other commentaries of that goal, yeah. which obviously have been completely forgotten about. Yeah. Right, exactly. And yeah. I remember it would have been on like, they think it's all over or something, talking to the not Kenneth Walsham home uh, commentator from that 1966. Was and, it Col- and Col- 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 do... I don't yeah. think it was him, but possibly but just talking about how he was complete. You know, he was like, "Oh, I thought I'd done quite a good job." Yeah. And obviously, that they think it's all over becomes this iconic. And yeah, Guy Moby did a good Aguero as well for, for the Guy, BBC. Guy, Guy Moby did a good. Thing yeah. <laughs> is that an, a, a gag about his age? To, yeah. What about you, Adam? Uh, well, I've had, I've had this ongoing kind of dilemma. I, whether I prefer Barry Davis or John Motson throughout my entire life because the sort of Blur or Oasis. Yeah, well, exactly. My, which my, one's which? Well they're, well, they're so different. This is the thing. I mean, I know... But Davies is definitely Blur because he's got more about him. He's he's more diverse, can do more things. Whereas Motson is Sl- yeah, definitely more Liam cerebral. Gallagher. He's at his best when he's just shouting into microphones. Yeah. No, that's, that, that works very well. And I mean, yeah, I never liked Blur. So this kind of wasn't like this decision is made for me. But I think early years... Motson like in the classic seventies eighties he was he, yeah he's perfect and Platini. and I and it's yeah because it's his voice and this is really important because his and and this was once scientifically proven by a, a study that his voice is perfectly suited to football commentary it had all it hit all the right range and all all the right timbre and all that sort of stuff. And so in his early years, and I grew up watching goals videos, so all I basically had was Motson and Davis screaming over goals. So I became essentially an expert on what could comes out it was. And so for the early years, Motson definitely. And then sort of Davis kind of grew on me a bit. And um, and uh, it kind of sealed by the fact that he, he did a nice message at my wedding, um, which which reduced me to tears in front of my entire family and friends. For you? Yeah. So you hadn't heard it before? It was played kind no, of live my, at the wedding? My brother secretly contacted him and, and said, uh, would you mind doing a uh, doing a message for my for my brother's wedding? And, uh, and, and this is what he said. And I, well, it was just beautiful, really. Look at his face. Just look at his face. Adam and Lucinda, all the best for a happy married life together. There's no question you are today's match of the day. How did Lucinda take that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's a big Motson did man. Just prefer Guy Mowbray. Yeah. So, yeah, based on that message alone, um, but, but Davis was, Davis was just kind of had an operatic quality yeah. to his voice. 
Molson had some very very strange moments as as well. <laughs> some um, there's this commentary. I know, I know where you're going with this. Uh, there's um, uh, it was a goal for Chelsea against Aston Villa <laughs> in 2008, and I've never heard a commentator announce a goal like this and it, it as, as unusual as it sounds you can kind of understand why he said it because it was a kind of goal that looked like it was coming a mile off and this is how he described it Maluda oh that's a nice little ball Frank Lampard Cole here turns it back in oh Balak Oh, Balak. It was just like, this goal is so routine. He said, oh, Balak. Well, you've that... done it, Balak. You've done it again, Balak. Balak. Stop it, Balak. Um, just just really nice. That's um, amazing. I can imagine I can imagine Motti doing that, like sitting next to me in the commentary box, as I, as I have had the pleasure of doing on a number of times. He he does have that sort of really strange, sort of unique way about it. I, <laughs> he is in the manner of, you know, to bring it back to the cliches, in the way that you would say a tricky winger doesn't know what he's going to do. Yeah. <laughs> Motti, I don't think, knows what he's going to say next, but it just kind of works. And the noises and the, the gasps and those sort of guttural roars that come out, you know, he's not particularly, if you look back through his history, he's not a wordsmith, really. He, he's very simple, mm. but he'll just go, oh, yes, it's a goal, amazing. <laughs> and that's that's basically his thing, but he does it in such a brilliant way. Yeah. And to see the man in operation close up was quite amazing, I have to say. I'd liken him, I mean, admittedly, you know, in his, in his sort of, in the latter stages of his career as he is now, he's like a, he looks like a bit of a, like a mole and he sort of scurries in and out of all the tunnels and like the crevices and the nooks and crannies of commentary boxes. And you can never, if you're due on air at 10, 10 to, at two o'clock or whatever, 10 to two, you're looking around going, mm. where's Motti? Where is he? And he'll just appear. Yeah. Hello, I'm ready. Okay. And he'll, he'll have been in the manager's office. Like he's still, he's one of the old school guys who, mm. you know, despite all the embargoes and the ludicrous protection of team sheets and yeah. stuff that we have these days, he'll just breeze into <laughs> whoever the manager is or just walk in and just, can I have the team? Or if you're working with him, like he'll call you up on a Thursday and go, David, I've got the team. <laughs> uh, that's great. We're, we're not on air for three days, Motti, but I mean, it's great that you've, you've phoned the, the physio and you've got the team. But he's I, like, he is a, he's a throwback in that Yeah, he, he, he became a caricature of himself a long, long time ago. Not really, it wasn't really his doing either. But, I, I love him. I, and I always have done. And it's just that the moment he started to sound like Zippy from Rainbow is when I hopped <laughs> off the Motson bandwagon and became a sort of Davis loyalist. Uh, but both of them fine. Quite a sweet thing about Motson. I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly. On his Desert Island discs, he chooses Three Lions. And that's, his, <laughs> and that's the one, you know, and you have to pick the one song. To, that's his one song. Imagine being There's stuck on a desert island with John Motson and oh, Three <laughs> yeah, Lions three just lions. playing in the background. Oh, well, this is the rest of my life. Yeah. Actually, that sounds all right, to be honest. I think yeah. I'd do that. Sounds fine to me. Punditry has reached this kind of stratosphere of importance. And we, we now have A-list pundits. They're very well paid. And they're incredibly important to broadcasting uh, of football. And they, they, they make their own headlines. Like Paul Scholes will have been on BT Sport at like, the real low point for Man United's current malaise. And, he, and all he would do is open his mouth and then there would be a thousand sort of web headlines from it. Why are pundits so important? Well, yeah, I mean, recently the the, the um, Carragher Keen, it was billed as like Carragher Keen, the rematch yeah. head of whatever game it was because they'd had this argument before yeah so i hate the idea of... that they might be in on it mm. 
you know, they kind of ruin. It's like when the masked magician comes on telly. Just think, I don't want pundits looking like they that they're, they're already set up for an argument. Yeah, exactly. There's obviously a sweet spot for the amount of punditry you have. I, I know Monday Night Football will go on for an hour talking about last weekend's offside decisions, and then you'll you'll see match of the day where they've only got two minutes to talk about it. So somewhere in there, there is a sweet spot of how much insight. And I talk about this word again because this is what people claim they want from their pundits: insight. And I just think when it boils down to it, on the night of the broadcast, I don't think people are really paying that much attention, are they, Dave? I don't know. I think Monday Night Football is a bit of an outlier because you literally do have, and they've kind of spoken about this, and there's been articles written about this, where Carragher and Neville will get in at like 10 in the morning and Mm. be there all day, and they'll analyse all the matches from the weekend, and they'll pick out what they want to do, and they'll get the clips, and, you know, it's a real lot of hard work has gone into making that show what it is and and you and you see that you can't do the same if you're just rocking up an hour before for whatever game it might be <laughs> at whatever time but but I think Monday Night Football has had a knock-on effect on the rest of the punditry world we, right. we expect what we do expect is a bit of a Gary Neville style and Carragher style analysis in these other places where it's just not set up to deliver that and but I think it's had a positive effect on something like Match of the Day mm. and like Match of the Day 2 mm. you, you get much you do get better analysis Some like Alan Shearer yeah. these days is a really good interesting pundit when he first pitched up he was he used to get pilloried every week because he was boring didn't said the obvious stuff and he was you know he was no good but yeah they, they've lifted the standard up I think and I think some people do want it but equally if you look at the figures for any broadcast of any radio or tv football match mm. They go, they spike the minute the game kicks off, and then at halftime they exactly. they disappear, and then at the end of the game they go away. So there is, uh, yeah, yeah. I feel n- like I quite like football. 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 I've yeah. got no real desire to hear them talk about it for fifteen minutes at halftime. I've happily just sort of gone Twitter or something. I don't know. Guessing whether a player's going to be a good pundit is about as hard to to establish as whether a player's going to be a good manager or not. You just you just can't tell. It, it literally could be any standard of player who turns out to be really good. I will I'll take an example like Danny Higginbotham who who clearly wasn't an elite level player. He was very good, you know, Gibraltar international after all, but he's turned out to be everyone's sort of go-to sort of up and coming pundit. He he knows what he's talking about. But I I think it's got to the point now where there are so many players trying to break into it. I reckon there's this kind of pyramid of punditry and I think the bottom level the kind of entry level is kind of the Stephen Warnock level where you're sort of the early morning guest on Sky Sports News, the guy that could get in at six to talk about the Champions League action from last night. <laughs> it happens to near yeah. hostily. And, it, and it's, it's easier for them because they, they don't have to wear ties on Sky Sports News anymore. It's just suddenly happened. None of them wear ties. We should do an entire episode on that, I think. So that's the bottom rung of punditry, I think. I'm not saying it's because it's terrible. I'm just saying it's the most accessible rung of the, of the pundit pyramid. Then I reckon next up, you, you probably get yourself a slot on a championship game on Sky, sort of the lunchtime Saturday. Then maybe Football Focus, which nobody watches anymore, but that's kind of your easy way in into the kind of magazine show. Then Match of the Day 2, which is kind of like the dressed-down Match of the Day, right. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, sort of like polo shirts. More relaxed, but you still need to deliver the goods. Yeah, yeah. Chappers will ask you some difficult questions. But you can have a bit yeah, of a laugh. It's, hard, it's harder fun. in a way, isn't it? Yeah. You can have a bit Less of a laugh. Less games, more space to talk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? yeah. Okay, okay, interesting. Well, I, then Match of the Day comes after that. Then you're into... Match of the day's top level, like real top no, level. No, I don't think so. Shearer. I, I know, but they're, they're big names, but I don't think there's actually any pressure on them to be good at their job because I, no one's going to stop watching Match of the Day because the pundits aren't very good. Honestly, I don't sure. think No, they're but they're very scrutinised. They are. Yeah, but they have two like, minutes I to analyse people, people, people feel they have ownership of Match of the Day mm. because it's BBC and it's like, you know, if you're not delivering... 
Can you stop disagreeing with my pundit pyramid, please? <laughs> I'm only halfway through. Okay. Just listen. Um, uh, the next I was getting a Premier League game on Sky at the weekend, just like, you know, maybe again the Saturday lunchtime, nothing major, maybe for an extra. The Saturday lunchtime is definitely the more casual yeah. product. Yeah. No studio setup. You often, you can, that's the thing. You can tell if the guys are just on the pitch side, just on the mics, they haven't set, bothered to set up a proper studio in an executive box. They viewed it as like the B game. Yeah. Your commentators, Andy Hinchcliffe, but first, Bill Leslie. Um, sorry to both of those. Uh, I think England friendly on ITV, that's kind of, that's when you're really starting to break into the big time with your Wrighties and your Dixons because they're, they're, just, they're just very nice to listen to on telly. Then Super Sunday, that's when you know you've really made it. And I feel like there's a sort of minimum number of trophies you have to win in your career. I, I just, I love it when every Super Sunday, the caption underneath Sunis is one 23 major, tr- major honours as a player and manager. And he, he, must, he must be so proud of that because that is his legacy, being on Sky and just having his entire career written under his name. Um, and then I think the ultimate is going to a major tournament with the BBC or ITV. I think, I feel like that's the pinnacle. The dress code for pundits and... Uh, I use my dad as, as the yardstick for this because he doesn't like football at all. So when I'm watching a live game, he'll walk in and go, why are they wearing suits? Why are they wearing suits? And it's a very good question. Why do football pundits need to wear suits? What's the point? Three-piece suits What do you as want well. them to wear? Just like, just whatever you're comfortable in. Well, there was you da- match of the day two attire. Da- Davy Thompson at the Olympics, he would just wear a tracksuit as a pundit. <laughs> it was great. It was like, I guess for that reason. Like, I'm a former athlete. I'm more comfortable in my trackies. And it, it it became this big talking point. A pundit in a tracksuit would be great. But you always see there is so a suit like open neck suit or whatever. But then for some matches, but then like an FA Cup final or a World Cup final or an, mm. or, a, or an England game on ITV, you'll mm. notice that they really yeah, they might you're bring right. out the waistcoat or the extra <laughs> special tie or something. It's just yeah, the, 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 some thought clearly goes into it. But you look at Jamie Redknapp, and his suit just basically seems to be permanently on shuffle. Like he'll take the top from one suit, the trousers from another one, and then uh, the waistcoat from completely another one. He's just a law unto himself. I want to talk about pundit pluralization. My theory, and I, I put a lot of thought into this, is essentially they haven't got enough evidence to to back up the point they're making. So by pluralizing the examples they do have, they're basically just padding it out. So your Arsenal means this that an Arsenal, and then another team like Arsenal. Um, but it's just, yeah, you, you're Aguero's, yeah, you're so Aubameyang's. Yeah, it's basically just saying, these are the players I, and these are the items I presented as my evidence. <laughs> there are more like them. <laughs> I just can't think of them right now. <laughs> That's what pluralisation is for. And people rip into it, but it, but it serves a really good function, just like most football cliches. And... Um, I just really, really well, there's also the there's also a sort of if taking it literally. There's the assumption that anyone, you know, it, oh, if that's in Aguero, he, he finishes all day long. <laughs> so anyone with the surname Aguero and Aguero would, would finish yeah. that all day long. Yeah, again, his it's, wife, his sister. Yeah, it's a it's a it's very similar concept. They're basically just saying this is an approximation of what I'm talking about. Please accept this as my evidence. <laughs> Though and that it, might be right with Aguero because wasn't he married to Maradona's daughter? <laughs> so his genes are actually like insane. <laughs> That's a very good point. I'd like to thank the David Walkers of this world and the Charlie Eccleshares of this world for coming on the podcast of this world. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.